Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Tech Talk. And we're coming back to you with a fantastic show here on this lovely morning on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I'm Michael Fragan, your host. Here in the studio, we have ZK at the control booth. And as I said, it's one of those uh, fantastic fall days where you're still thinking, oh, it might be summer. Maybe I should go out and play some golf. But uh, Monday, of course, is uh, one of those work days, and uh, you have to get used to it. So here we are back another Monday morning, kicking off the week, talking a little bit of uh, venture capital, a little bit of technology, a little bit of Israel as we're doing. Still forming the show, so all comments are welcome. Gotten quite a few from different people out there. Everybody has their two cents to put in. Uh, Not unlike that other world that I inhabit, which is that of politics. Everybody has an opinion, but we have a actually fantastic show uh, coming up on the intersection of venture capital, investing, finance, technology, and as well as Israel, and coming to you in two parts. And our first guest is on the line, and he is uh, Bruce Tarragon. Bruce is a longtime venture capitalist, managing director at Bloomberg Capital, which is out in San Francisco. Uh, grew up uh, on the East Coast, made the trek to the West Coast. He'll talk about that, but has uh, really made a name for himself as an early stage venture capital investor, entrepreneur, and technology investment banker. He joined Bloomberg in 1998, and before that, he was at Charles River Computers, as well as uh, Hamburg and Quist, which was an investment bank that focused uh, very early on on the technology sector, and he is earned his BA in finance communications from YU at Yeshiva University, to some of you out there, and his MBA in JD from Fordham University. Bruce, welcome to Tech Talk. Michael, thanks. Great to be here. So, Bruce, which part of the world are you joining us from? Uh, so, I'm actually in Oakland, California, in oh. uh, the Bay Area. Back, um, back in the home base today. I am. I am. It's good to be here. I only ask because I know about your prolific travel schedule. <laughs> Yes, yes. So it's definitely uh, great to be here. Thanks. I was actually scheduled to be on the East Coast this week and shuffled stuff around. And unfortunately for you know calling in, it would be great to be there live. But uh, it's great to call in and uh, join uh, your show. Well, that's why we say next time. So uh, let's start with a little biographical information. I, I give the, the audience a little bit of a rundown on uh, Bruce Tarragon. But you, why don't you give us an idea about uh, you and Bloomberg Capital and what it means to be an early-stage venture capitalist. If you don't mind me saying early-stage venture capitalist, I could just say venture capitalist. No, no, that's fine. Thanks. We actually, the mantra we like to use is, is we tell folks that we lead the sea. And that's really the niche market we're trying to fill, uh, the opportunity really in the marketplace is, is getting in early. And I think there's been massive change in venture capital, just like there's disruption across, you know, technology over the last decade. There's also been some significant shifts around venture capital. So we're trying to fill some of that uh, void, I would say. But Bloomberg Capital, as you said, is an early-stage venture fund, classic early-stage venture fund. We are based physically in Silicon Valley. Uh, Last year, we actually opened up an office, a physical office in Tel Aviv. We've had uh, a variety of team members there over the past, you know, 10 or 20 years. As you mentioned, I joined up with my partner, David Bloomberg, in 1998. You know, it's been a, it's been a terrific ride, and um, I think we view ourselves very much like a startup, and I, I think we're at this inflection point ourselves as a startup, that we're seeing significant growth and just the pace of innovation changing. So it's a, it's a privilege, and, and it's a really exciting time to be working as a venture capitalist. Well, Bruce, you mentioned you mentioned a void. What what is the void that you're you're filling? Is it possible there could be a void out there in in the investment world? It always seems people on the outside that there's so much money chasing good investments. Well, maybe at a macro level, and and of course it's always challenging to get into maybe the best and the brightest companies. But um, but there's the shift really in venture over the last decade has been that probably two thirds of the venture funds have disappeared. And the one-third of the venture funds remaining are, you know, these mega funds, these billion-dollar funds like Sequoia, Kleiner, Kostla, Anderson Horowitz, Greylock, et cetera, these billion-dollar funds that have really, at the end of the day, they've shifted. I mean, I think a lot of them have taken the venture out of venture capital just because their funds are so large. And so they're much more focused on the 10 to $50 million check that they can deploy into a company 
really after a lot of the technology risk, um, product risk, uh, market fit have been taken out of the equation. And so where we sit really is that that early, early stage, and we're, we're almost a bridge at Bloomberg Capital that we're investing very early with, uh, you know, angel investors, these individuals, and and then bridging and then continuing to invest through to the rounds with, you know, these larger venture funds. But I think the entrepreneurs really need folks early stage, again, as I mentioned before, that are willing to lead the seed, roll up their sleeves, invest early, and help these companies you know, attack any given market. And and the other thing that's changed over the last decade is entrepreneurs just don't need as much capital. You know, if you look at some of the drivers of technology like Moore's Law, Metcalf's Law, Gilder's Law, and, you know, these other phenomenon of, you know, outsourcing IT, open source technologies, it's really enabled tremendous capital efficiency, which didn't exist probably 15, 20 years ago in the marketplace. So today you have entrepreneurs that are building disruptive companies for significantly less dollars. And while there's, in a certain sense, more dollars in the marketplace, the shift has been to later stage, you know, primarily for most of the funds that are managing these billion-dollar funds and above. So there, there's definitely a niche market that we're attacking. And I think, again, unlike 20, 30 years ago, there's been this phenomenon I would refer to as this democratization of entrepreneurship. So today, you know, entrepreneurs are not just going on to Sand Hill Road for funding. But whether it's the Mid-Atlantic region and New York has become an exciting hub that's, you know, really uh, missing, you know, in my opinion, you know, a market leader. You don't have Sandal Road in New York. Uh, Israel, I think, there has gone through a lot of change as well. Uh, a number of the venture funds there have, have gone away and, and who's actually actively investing, you know, in entrepreneurship and, and of course, here in Silicon Valley. So we think that there's this opportunity and there's been globalization. So, you know, we've been investing in companies now you know, in, that are based out of Canada, obviously U.S. and Israel. Um, we've been over to, you know, Asia, you know, Japan, Singapore is a technology hub. Uh, Germany, you know, Berlin in particular has been a big hub of technology innovation uh, across the European marketplace. So there's there's been this democratization of entrepreneurship. So it's a really exciting time to, uh, you know, look at some uh, investment opportunities and deploy capital. How do you spend your day? Uh, or your your day must be pretty exciting. I guess that that well, would be I, best comment. It's it, it's it's 7 a.m. Uh, here on the West Coast, so this is a good start to the day. And you know, and today's probably pretty typical. And, and, and you're probably product. grounded because of the train strike, right? You can't get from Oakland to San Francisco, right? Yeah, right now. the bar strike. It uh, fortunately, uh, it's you know, it just takes a little longer, but uh, but it hasn't been uh, completely devastating, but uh, definitely unfortunate. And I think it's impacting my kids getting to school more than it is uh, impacting me uh, getting to work. But, uh, you know, I, I would say our typical day is, is um, you know, I think uh, a little later this morning I'm meeting with one of our companies that's in from Israel, and uh, they're going on a roadshow to raise their next round of funding. Uh, so it's meeting with them, helping them, you know, put together that presentation, meeting with the right folks. Um, any given day, we're probably meeting with a handful of, of companies, investment opportunities that we're looking at. Um, later this week, um, uh, friends of ours are um, speaking at a conference. Uh, Denton's is hosting later on this week out in Silicon Valley. A friend of mine, David Pappy, is partner there. Uh, we've done a lot of work with their firm. They're hosting a big technology media telecommunications uh, conference that uh, last year and the year before had some, some really phenomenal turnout. So it's an amazing sort of virtuous ecosystem of folks that we uh, um, find ourselves surrounded by. Uh, later on in the afternoon, there's a few companies actually coming from Israel that are presenting to us. We typically, um, on a weekly basis as a team, uh, my partnership, we review and, and typically in venture, Monday morning is the partner meeting. We actually do ours on Tuesday mornings, uh, just to be a little bit contrarian. Um, but uh, we sit down and, and typically review, you know, deal flow companies that we're evaluating. We review companies that are in the portfolio across a couple of funds and um, see what, you know, what we need to do and prioritize um, efforts there. So that, that's a pretty typical day. And um, uh, actually, uh, it's interesting. I was invited to speak in Portugal and Lisbon and, and was over there last year. And they're actually trying to really replicate what uh, folks have done in Israel. And they have really interesting ecosystem there as well. Some great universities, government funding, uh, matching programs to promote entrepreneurship. And I, I would say they're probably at least 10, maybe 15 years behind Israel, but they're trying to create that type of uh, ecosystem there. So I'm actually speaking to a bunch of entrepreneurs on, on Google Hangout 
that are over in Portugal because I, I just couldn't make the trip over this year. Uh, so that's, you know, later today as well. Uh, things of, of that nature. So it's always a full, exciting day, and it, it's great. I mean, it's really interesting. And because we work in so many different time zones, it tends to be, you know, a long day as well, uh, obviously starting early and sometimes uh, going quite late. How, how do you structure the... I guess the buckets of your your function, uh, sourcing deals, the actual transaction, and you know getting a deal done, and then I guess the third part is managing, you know, on an ongoing basis. <clears throat> excuse me, the companies themselves that you're I that you maintain an active role in. You know, how, how from your personal, professional, or even the firm's perspective, how, how do you manage those those different functions as far as splitting your time? Sure. So uh, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, probably one part of the equation that you didn't include is, you know, all of that only happens if you have dollars under management. And so Ah, fundraising, I was going to get to that as a as another question, but I guess that all comes first, right? (laughs) Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, clearly, if you know, you don't have capital, then it's uh, tough to start investing. So, uh, you know, we spend a fair amount of time, David Blumberg and I, uh, over the years, um, obviously raising funds and, and investing capital. At this point, we have about uh, three, $400 million of uh, assets under management. We're currently investing out of Bloomberg Capital Three. Uh, we, we actually haven't announced it yet, but um, Fund Three uh, was incredibly oversubscribed and will end up being about a $150 million fund. So we're very Congratulations. Thank you. We're appreciative and excited about that. And um, we've already made uh, about 10 investments out of the new fund. And um, uh, then, you know, as you mentioned, it's really all about trying to source proprietary deal flow, uh, uh, negotiating, structuring transactions. And then I I would say really our job just starts, you know, post-investment the day after. It's, you know, we're getting in really early into these uh, companies that we're investing in. So it's usually three entrepreneurs that are incredibly smart trying to attack a given white space. And these are entrepreneurs that are, you know, coming out of MIT, IIT, Harvard, Stanford, the Technion, and, you know, ex-PayPal, Google uh, type of folks that have, you know, really uh, brilliant entrepreneurs looking to disrupt any given market. We try to get an early, meaning pre-revenue, pre-product, and help them launch. And, and I would say most of the entrepreneurs that we're funding are technically geniuses and, and brilliant. And hopefully where we try to help and, and not mess things up are really assist them with sales, marketing, business development, those types of uh, skills, which is what we typically bring to the table. And we try to accelerate um, the, the the sales cycle and the growth and the maturation of those companies. And we spend a lot of our time. I mean, that's, you know, typically um, on our team, we'll have a board member and a board observer. And, you know, I'm probably on uh, touching and talking to either by a phone or email or board meeting most of our companies on a weekly you know, biweekly basis. So it's it's very frequent interaction uh, with the objective of, again, trying to really help uh, them get into any given market. So and probably the, the best example of that is what we've done as a firm is we've established something called a CIO and a CMO council. These are chief information officers, chief marketing officers that we spend an incredible amount of time with. So uh, later um, this month, I'm, I'm, I'm in New York for our CIO council where we typically have 10 or 15 of our CIOs that are in a room over lunch and we, you know, listen to and meet with either an existing portfolio company or a prospective investment. And the, the entrepreneurs will typically present for a few minutes and then uh, we'll hit the pause button and go around the room of CIOs and ask them, if we build this, would you buy it? How much would you pay? Is this a nice to have? Is this a must have? Things of, of that nature. Similarly with CMOs, chief marketing officers for our companies that are across the social, mobile, and digital spectrum. And getting access for entrepreneurs very early on, getting them access to, you know, the CIOs and the CMOs from, you know, IBM, Thomson Reuters, UBS, Credit Suisse, um, you know, ESPN.com, you know, uh, group uh, thought leadership from some of the biggest agencies in the world and the biggest brands, that, that's proven to be really invaluable access that we try to provide. And, and you know, I spoke last week. Uh, there was a whole uh, collection of about 50 brands out in the Valley um, 
trying to understand some innovation and areas of uh, technology innovation and having an opportunity where I spoke to them and, and shared with them a number of our, and actually had one of our companies featured that presented to them. So getting our portfolio companies access. So that's a lot of it. And then invariably, uh, the next stage of the life cycle is typically, you know, helping them work through capitalization and then ultimately, hopefully, you know, a positive exit. And, um, you know, we just, uh, about two months ago, we were seed investors in a company, a Canadian company called Hootsuite in the social media space. And uh, we just exited the company. We did about a 53x uh, return on our investment in four years uh, on our investment in that company. And we still own, you know, less than 5% of the company. For, for uh, those of you out there, 53x would be $1,000 equals $53,000, which is, which is yes, kind of better than most people do in Vegas. Yes, yes. Now, I would just add a few zeros, but yes, that's, that's the right idea. <laughs> exactly. So uh, we're talking with Bruce Tarragon, Managing Director at Bloomberg Capital out in San Francisco, uh, early stage venture capitalist who looks at, uh, I would say, dozens, if not hundreds, well, dozens of companies probably every week and hundreds of companies, not thousands a year. Uh, Bruce, tell us a little bit about the, the ratio that they say, uh, I guess, and I'm sure I've read this multiple places. It might have changed over time, but one out of only one out of every 60 startups is successful. And then I think out of that, you know, a lot of venture capital firms have a ratio of, you know, one out of every 10 or one out of every 20 kind of makes it, and the rest of them are, are you know, you're, you're playing a law of averages. Is that still is that something that still exists, or are investors like yourself more sophisticated these days? question. So just to get to your earlier point, we typically, uh, my firm looks at probably three to 5,000 companies a year, and we'll invest in approximately 10 or 15 new companies every year. So we're probably investing in one new company every three, four weeks. And then there's follow-on financings for existing portfolio companies as well. And you're right. I mean, I think we can, we've been quite fortunate as a firm, and I can I can tell you on our last fund, we seeded approximately 44 companies. We've only shut down one to date, and we've sold eight or nine. Again, one of them returned most of our prior fund. And we probably have right now between five or ten companies in that fund that are tracking to do you know, sub-100 million in revenue, but significant growth. And um, probably another 10 or 15 of those companies have raised between five and $25 million in venture. And more often than not, Companies are going to probably get acquired for you know, 25 to 75 million. I think on average, historically over the last 40 years, on average M&A is about 70 million dollars. What's changed? Another macro level change I think in venture is this phenomenon called aqua hires. This is acquisition to hire, and so because our ecosystem has really changed, and if you look today, you know, Facebook, Google, Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, Yahoo. Many of these companies didn't even exist 10 or 15 years ago. And so what's happening today is there's a tremendous shortage of, uh, of engineering resource. There's probably, on average, in, in North America, there's about 60,000 engineers graduating a year, but there's demand for about 125,000 uh, engineering grads to work across technology. And so they have this phenomenon called aqua hires where – even when we quote unquote fail, we're very fortunate and usually positioned to sell our company to one of the companies I mentioned. And typically they pay one to two million dollars a head, you know, an engineering head for those companies. So because we get in so early and we're very capital efficient, meaning companies just don't need as much money as they did 10, 15 years ago, and we're reasonably price disciplined, so we're getting in at a pretty good price point. More often than not, we could sell those companies and make one, two, three X return on our investment. So there's been a lot less failure we're finding as an early stage venture fund. I think historically the numbers you mentioned are probably right, where you know most venture funds probably historically a hundred million dollar fund would invest in twenty companies, and probably two or three of those companies would return the majority of the fund, and and probably half or more would end up dying. So that's changed. I mean, it's definitely changed for us. I think we've been a little bit lucky, a little bit smart, and it's definitely changed uh, across the ecosystem as well. Let's, uh, Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk for a second about Israel, right? You, you spend a lot of time over there. You have an Israel office, Tel Aviv office, and we like to focus a lot in this show on Israeli technology and what's coming out of Israel so what's been your experience over the last 20 years about the, the changes and improvements as well as trends coming out of Israel, and what do you see as far as companies are concerned? 
Sure. Um, so Israel's been a really interesting market, and I think it, you know, they refer to Israel as Silicon Valley, you know, which, you know, is Silicon Everybody Valley. needs a Silicon in their, in, you know, in the you know, prefix. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a prerequisite, of course. Um, so, you know, it's very similar to Silicon Valley here uh, in the U.S. market. It, it really mirrors it, and it's, it's interesting uh, for us. I mean, we've really traveled the globe, and... We have yet to see uh, a country that um, has replicated it as effectively as Israel, you know, in the in the past you know, 40 years. So, you know, kudos to Israel. But I, I think we're getting competition from, you know, the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China. And I think it's important for Israel to not, you know, we can't, entrepreneurs, not that they are, but they can't sit back on their laurels and say, oh, you know, we've been there, done that. And, you know, we've won the battle. Uh you know, I think it's ongoing and it's intensely competitive, you know, for dollars. And there's markets that are opening up that didn't exist, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. So I think you have to always be sensitive to that. You know, historically, technology out of Israel has, you know, probably 60% of the Israeli technology companies that are funding are software, Internet-related companies. You know, the big shift has really been from enterprise into social, mobile, digital sectors for Israel. I found probably about 10 or 15 years ago, I think there was a little bit of a hiccup in my opinion where some of the entrepreneurs had to really take it a little bit to learn and understand uh, the difference in investing in, you know, classic enterprise software that you sold to financial services, insurance, healthcare, versus today many companies that are focused on more consumer internet. So I, I found that it's a little bit challenging, I think, being in Israel because you're so far away from the actual market. But to me, Israel's always represented outsourced research and development. And, you know, you get tremendous talent for a fraction of the cost that it would be in Silicon Valley. And, you know, obviously going back to their days when, you know, the top, you know, most elite entrepreneurs in Israel worked in the Army, and then they come out and, you know, commercialize those type of offerings. You know, we were early investors in Checkpoint Software. You know, so many of these entrepreneurs come out of, you know, Shimon Matayim, the 8200 military unit, or Telpiot and some of these other groups with an amazing training. And they're, they're basically at a young age, thrown, you know, they're in the Army, and they're thrown into a room and basically told, you better figure this out, solve this problem, or your grandmother's dead. So it's an incredible motivator for them to work together in, in teams, to have, you know, budget, you know, IT budgets. And then none of them want to come out and graduate uh, from that and go work for, you know, necessarily for IBM or Computer Associates. They all want to start their own company and, and, and you know, disrupt the marketplace. And so it, it's an amazing culture that, you know, promotes that. And then there's funding from the Office of the Chief Scientist and, you know, billions of dollars in venture, obviously, in the market itself. So it's, it's very unique, very unusual. And, um, in fact, my partner, David Blumberg, has been over there, you know, for the last week and a half uh, for a number of different events with my colleague, Alwan Lipschitz, who's based out of our Tel Aviv office. And, um, it, it's again, I, we think it's a really exciting time. We're, we're in the middle of uh, actively uh, trying to invest in a number of Israeli companies as we speak. And, uh, obviously, we've historically been very actively investing uh, across the Israel market for, for decades. I've lived and worked there. Uh, my partner, David, was investing there with probably one of the patriarchs of venture capital, a gentleman by the name of Fred Adler, who was investing in Israeli technology back in the 80s before really any of the venture funds in Israel even existed, and we're investing there. So we do think there's tremendous opportunity on a selective basis, obviously, and uh, you know, probably on an annualized basis, you know, probably uh, 1,200, 1,500 companies a year raise about a billion dollars out of the Israel market. Um, so, you know, the, the, the engine is, is very much alive, and um, you know, we think there's tremendous opportunity. We're talking with Bruce Tarragon, Managing Director at Blumberg Capital, a San Francisco-based venture capital firm that's making investments all around the world. Uh, just a question as far as the, your venture capital business. We've spoken to, had a couple different guests on the show. It hasn't been around that long, but we're trying to have a wide variety. We've spoken to uh, Jonathan Medved. Uh, who is now kind of turning venture capital into a crowdsource funding uh, with uh, with something called R Crowd, and then we spoke uh, last week with Renan Grobman from uh, Jerusalem Global, who has they've changed their focus from early stage to later stage, and can, maybe you can comment for a second on how you guys have kind of stayed focused on that early stage on on the sweet spot that you're that you're in, and maybe why. 
different venture firms are are changing the way they're doing business? Well, again, fundamentally, you know, we're fiduciaries, and it's all about returns. And I think um, a number of venture funds, as I mentioned earlier, you know, two-thirds of the venture funds have disappeared. The performance has not been there. I think we, Bumber Capital, we've been very fortunate to have some, you know, strong performance uh, for the last bunch of years. And um, uh, as such, I think we've hit on, we think, a model that makes a lot of sense. And, and again, uh, our mantra, lead the seed, and we raised – this $150 million fund, it was oversubscribed. We could have easily gone to 250 or, you know, more on this fund. <clears throat> and frankly, it was, you know, it was a difficult decision, but um, we really thought uh, structure, we believe structure can determine outcome. And as such, we wanted to stay relatively small. We're, we're a pretty large seed fund, and we think that position of, positions us very well in the marketplace. But we felt that... Uh, this really gives us an opportunity to, to get in early. And I, and I would say the theme that we focus on is alignment of interest. Is there alignment of interest between, you know, us uh, as the general partner, our, our limited partners, the investors in the fund, and the entrepreneurs? And, and obviously we think yes. You know, what's nice is that oftentimes uh, entrepreneurs come to us today different from what they did 10 or 15 years ago, and they might only need $500,000 or a million and a half dollars to start their company and get it launched. They don't necessarily need $10, $20, $30 million right out of the box. And, in fact, they don't want to raise that because then they're giving up oftentimes control and uh, their issues, you know, around that. So the fact that, you know, our structure enables us to, you know, write a $500,000 check and or a million and a half dollar check and then follow on and be supportive of the company, we think really differentiates us in the marketplace and enables us to be very entrepreneur friendly as a firm. You know, I think what John's doing with our crowd is is great, and and it's it's a, a a new model. There's you know a number of crowdsourcing you know funds and groups that are out in the valley as well as Israel and abroad, and I, I think again it it creates you know it fills a need and provides tremendous opportunity. And then, you know, uh, Jerusalem Global and some of these other firms that are shifting to later stage. You know, there's clearly you know capitalization requirements you know throughout the whole food chain you know for the company's uh, requirements. You know, to me, it seems a little bit more challenging if you're a late-stage fund in Israel, uh, necessarily uh, finding maybe the best and the brightest, uh, because you're not getting access to the U.S. deal flow. And then you're also challenged in terms of once a company sort of leaves the Israel market and is more mature, you know, presumably they're coming to the U.S. market, to the European markets to raise capital. So, you know, maybe you're up against that. So it may be a little bit more competitive in that sense to compete with some of the bigger brands that uh, are late-stage as well. Um, but clearly there's a need, you know, for companies to get, um, you know, funding. So I, I think it's great that, again, we're finding ourselves in this very virtuous ecosystem of entrepreneurship uh, and investors, um, you know, you know, Japan and uh, uh, Jerusalem Global have, have been around for, for decades, you know, in one form or another. And, and it's it's great for us to, you know, find opportunities to collaborate, which we do. I was, you know, John was in our offices probably a year or two ago chatting and, you know, met with some of his team a few months ago when they were out as well. Uh, so uh, it's very collaborative. I, I would call it competition. I mean, I think there's opportunity for us to, to invest, you know, for sure. Well, it's, I guess uh, a lot of capital will grease the wheels of, uh, you know the entire economy and the entire ecosystem. Uh, let's get to that fun part of the uh, conversation. What what companies are you most that you've invested in right now that you're most excited about? Uh, obviously, not everything is going to return the 53x of Hootsuite with the you know with that type of investment, but there are all kinds of things on the horizon that you're obviously very excited about. Sure. So you know one. There's um, actually this really interesting uh, report, I think it was put out by uh, McKinsey, which um, talks about really the, the future of innovation. And I, I would say at a, at a macro level, we're focused on investing really – we're investing in the digitization of the services economy, probably 65 to 70% of the U.S. economy and, for that matter, the global economy, our services industry – you know, Greenspan always, they used to ask Greenspan, you know, where's productivity? Where's productivity coming from? And it's really the infusion of technology into these mundane esoteric businesses across different spheres, you know, HR, financial services, et cetera. That, that's primarily where, you know, we as a firm are investing in this digitization of the services economy. The trend of really 
um, offline to online, which and today obviously to mobile. I mean, this, this ubiquity of mobile devices, the proliferation of the smartphone, where a million devices are being activated daily, it's just really disrupting uh, business models, how consumers are um, effectively, you know, uh, interacting and digesting, you know, new opportunities. So at a macro level, it's that. Another area I would refer to is the Internet of Things. And it's a trillion-dollar market, and it's effectively it's machine-to-machine communication. So if you think about, you know, Nike's FitBands, for example, uh, the data that we're going to find across these different, um, you know, spheres and devices, whether it's, you know, working on, you know, traffic, you know, highways, hospitals, your home, everything being sort of Internet-enabled and communicating to one another. And so the ability to do analysis around that, you know, topic of big data, uh, as they refer to it, but this Internet of Things uh, is a really exciting market. We've, uh, again, as I mentioned, you know, Hootsuite was a, a great seed investment for us, and, and we're thrilled to still be, you know, uh, shareholders in the company and, and expect you know, tremendous things from them going forward. Uh, this whole trend of, you know, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, of social media and communication, uh, you know, we we really jumped on that early and saw that as a, as a tremendous opportunity. Um, we're uh, investors in a company that started out out of Israel called Credorax, uh, their uh, payment platform. Uh, they've seen phenomenal growth. We were seed investors. We've already raised another $40 million from financial technology ventures, FTV, at a Know, substantial, you know, markup from where we initially funded the company, and uh, they're on amazing trajectory with offices in Israel, uh, Malta, and in the U.S. They're currently headquartered out of Boston. Um, double verify in the digital media space. Um, that's really providing this online ad verification um, based out of uh, Israel originally as well. Um, uh, there's another U.S.-based company that's experiencing phenomenal growth called Nutanix. It's a team uh, out of Google that we receive investors in. They've, they've raised uh, under $100 million at this point, um, but are seeing phenomenal growth uh, globally where they've uh, basically combined compute and storage to, uh, within their storage infrastructure. And if you think for a moment about 10 or 15 years ago, you were probably saving a Word document. Uh, maybe five years ago, uh, you're, you were saving a picture, and today everything's video. And the proliferation of video, the ability to, again, retrieve, uh, uh, deduplicate, and archive, and search, you know, all that data. Um, so that's sort of the, the space that Nutanix sits in. So we think there's going to be a lot of innovation still around cloud computing, storage, uh, primary and secondary storage, uh, areas like that. So uh, there's uh, tremendous innovation continuing on, and uh, we're excited to be in the marketplace investing. Fantastic. Uh, Bruce Tarragon, Managing Director at Blubber Capital, early stage venture capitalist, and certainly a fascinating discussion of what's exciting at both here and in Israel and what's exciting out there on the front of uh, new technologies out there. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Uh, we hope to have you again in the very near future. Michael, thanks very much. It's great to be here and uh, happy to happy to join. And congratulations on being oversubscribed in that new fund. I guess that's something, uh, as you as you well mentioned before, it's something that every venture capitalist, uh, I guess that, that that's kind of the the currency of appreciation, the currency of success, is being oversubscribed. Thanks. That's no, great. It's great. Thanks to you know for having me. Fantastic. This is Tech Talk on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and we are sponsored by Adorama Camera, Adorama.com. Uh, we encourage you to visit Adorama and uh, make that your source for all things electronics, camera, and the like. And uh, for the second half of the show, we're going to do something we haven't done before, which is uh, actually talk about a book and talk to the author of a book. And I know there's another show on this network that that does that, but I read a book recently that I was so intrigued by that I really had to have the author on. So I want to welcome Molly Knight Raskin, who we have on the line, uh, who wrote a biography of Danny Lewin. And uh, Danny Lewin might not be a household name to much of the audience out there, but I will tell you, having uh, read uh, the great majority of this book, I did not cover actually every single chapter, but uh, he certainly should be. Uh, certainly when it comes to technology, certainly when it comes to the Jewish community, uh, Danny Lewin was an extraordinary individual. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit to Molly uh, 
about his life and, you know, the book and putting together the book and, you know, how she became intrigued by Danny Lewin. Molly, welcome to Tech Talk. Oh, Michael, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So you wrote this book, uh, and Danny Lewin, I guess, as a, to put it in context, uh, was just every, everything this guy touched pretty much. There was nothing that he couldn't do. And some, and his life was uh, tragically cut short as the first victim of 9/11. Yes, that's right. Um, you know, it was interesting when I first started. You know, when I first learned about the story and first uh, started reporting and interviewing people, it really did seem that way to me that um, you know, almost that that Danny was superhuman. And of course, being a you know trained as a journalist and trained in skepticism, um, I, you know, I, I kind of set out to, like, disabuse myself of the idea that, you know, everything he touched turned to gold. But um, as it happened, you know, the, the, <laughs> this really was the case. Although, you know, um, in the book I, I explain that, you know, he, he also worked incredibly hard to make things happen. So he had his fair share of rejections and challenges, but he just didn't let them stop him. How did you come to to finding Danny Lewin? Uh, was it at night? Was it nine eleven? Was it something about Akamai? Was it something about his transition from Israel to the U.S. MIT? What what, what prompted you to write this book? Well, um, you know, it, it was actually it was really a combination of things. I mean, I've been covering you know a lot of remarkable stories in my career as a journalist, and I'd always wanted to write a book. I just really never found a topic that you know, energized me and engaged me enough to really, you know, take time off from the job and and write. And when I first heard about Danny's story, um, you know, at first, of course, like most people, it was the fact that he was almost certainly the first victim of 9-11 um, and, and fought back on that flight heroically that really intrigued me because I had been in New York on September 11th and I had reported and covered a lot of stories that year and I, I couldn't believe I'd never heard of him, you know, just given what uh, we know of what happened on that flight. And, but then it was, you know, that alone was interesting to me. But then once I really learned of the story of this, this young man who in such a short time really changed the face of technology um, and embodied this um, incredible, you know, Israeli spirit of innovation, um, despite the fact that he was born in Denver and raised in, in Colorado, um, fascinated me. And so that, you know, that element of kind of what Israel did for his character um, also really was, was amazing to me, and, and I wanted to explore that. So just drill a little bit deeper. Give us the quick biographical sketch, if you can, of Danny Lewin. Sure. Um, Danny was born in 1970. Um, he was born in Denver, Colorado, as I mentioned. His parents were both doctors, um, family of three boys, uh, very tightly knit family, um, attended a reform synagogue outside of Denver in their suburban neighborhood. And when Danny was a teenager, his father, who was um, a psychiatrist, but also very is very philosophical and writes poetry and was interested in exploring different religions and values and um, you know, works of literature, really fell in love with uh, you know, the values of Zionism and decided that he felt it would be best for his family to make Aliyah and move to Israel. And, you know, as you probably know, and maybe many of your listeners do, that was an unusual choice for a family with three teenage boys. Um, they didn't have any family in Israel. They didn't speak Hebrew. Um, and it was not a popular decision among the rest of the family. And so Danny kind of went um, kicking and screaming to Israel. He was the eldest of the three boys and definitely the most um, sort of outwardly spoken and dynamic. And so they got to Israel, and um, what happened from there is really where the story becomes so extraordinary. You know, I think in part because he was so upset about moving there, he just decided that instead of rebelling in a, in a sort of unproductive, negative way, um, because he'd grown up in this household that was tightly knit and very intellectual parents, who encouraged learning, that he was just going to strike out on his own. And he kind of emancipated himself from his parents and, and ended up really falling in love with Israel. And um, in part, I think that was the intensity of the country really appealed to him and the sense of urgency that he sort of innately had from birth. Um, so he went on to sort of sail through high school, 
Um, and then at age 18, he decided that he would join the, the IDF, um, part of compulsory service, and he considered himself Israeli by this point. It was only a couple years later, and his Hebrew was still a little broken. But um, So he joined the IDF, and much to the surprise and actually doubt of a lot of people who knew him, he was selected for one of the most elite units of the IDF, which is Sairet Matkal. Um, after serving in the unit, he went on to the Technion, where he was um, won Best Student Paper Award, juggling two degrees with a family and a job at IBM. He then was accepted to MIT on a scholarship to study computer science and went to MIT, and that's where he wrote this extraordinary master's thesis that formed the technology um, that he used to create a company called Akamai Technologies with his professor, Tom Layton, at first and then with some others. Um, that is still alive and well today. So along the way, it's it's just remarkable that, number one, that even an American could make it into Sayyarat Matkal coming in, into Israel in his teens and having the, I guess, living in the suburban creature comforts of, mm-hmm. uh, of Colorado. Uh, I think that that's one just incredible thing that that I noticed, but also there were a lot of stresses along the way for for Danny Lewin. Uh, it wasn't that, despite uh, his ability to intellectually overcome pretty much anything and to really solve just uh, incredibly difficult problems. Uh, along the way, there was kind of this tension as to whether to stay in academia or to start a business. He eventually ended up starting a company that was that was Akamai. But he had some failures along the way, um, you know, there were, with regard to uh, entering it into the M- prestigious MIT business plan competition, which they didn't mm-hmm. win. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I guess one thing I noticed that you that you really explored was his ability to overcome that type of adversity, uh, not necessarily the the uh, intellectual adversity, but the the other the adversity of not having two pennies to rub together. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's really, um, you know, when, when you write um, about somebody's life, you know, you have to find these things that are extraordinary to you, and you have to sort of seek to explain them. And that, I think, is truly the most extraordinary thing about Danny Lewin as a, as a person. You know, he you're absolutely right. I mean, he, well, we talked about how everything he touched turned to gold. He was human, and he had failings, um, just like all of us do. But the interesting thing about him was how, you know, what he did with those failures or those um, rejections or, you know, what he did with the doubters. And there were plenty of them. Um, you know, as you note, he, when he first came to Israel, um, you know, there were those who sort of made fun of his broken Hebrew or, you know, um, sort of maybe doubted his ability to, to do well at school he proved everybody wrong, um, and Syred McCall was another example of that. I mean, he—you're uh, absolutely right. It's it's completely extraordinary for someone who's American-born, grew up in the states, had absolutely no ties to the IDF. That was a unit that was hand-selected until the 80s um, or, or, or early 90s, and for him to to um, you know, and he set out with these goals. So he'd say to people, "This is what I'm going to do." And most of the time, these goals were so audacious that people would look back at him and say, good luck with that, you know, with kind of a mocking, you know, oh, you're going to speed up the Internet with your MIT technology and math? Good luck with that, you know. And he was never, like, really dissuaded by any of this. And, and you're right, he didn't win uh, early on. They entered, uh, he, he entered his paper in the MIT business plan competition, hoping to win some money so he could, you know, feed his family, um, quite literally, and they didn't win. They didn't even win. They weren't even in the top three or four. Um, And, you know, when he first submitted his paper, his master's thesis that became Akamai Technologies, um, to an academic conference early on, it was rejected. And the, the, the reply said something like, you know, while this is very interesting, we don't think it has any practical application. Um, you know, a lot of us, I think, would be really discouraged by that. Um, he just didn't seem to be. And the same was true for early on when he was out pitching optimized technology to these huge corporations and companies that, 
you know, very easily scoffed. Um, I mean, he had to be literally physically escorted away from a couple of them. He was so persistent. So I think that persistence and belief in himself and his own abilities was intriguing and unusual. We're talking to Molly Knight Raskin. Do we? Is it Molly Knight Raskin or Molly Raskin? Yep. Okay. Either is fine. Either either one is fine. Yeah. Uh, The author of No Better Time, The Brief and Remarkable Life of Danny Lewin. And uh, why did you name the book No Better Time? Uh, That's a great question. Um, Well, you know, when I when I thought about so, so Danny had this this incredible life that you know. When, for example, when you ask me to sum it up, you know, it's it's difficult because he succeeded in all these different arenas and he um, lived so fully, both in the United States and in Israel. And there was the academic success and the business success. Um, but the one theme that kind of ran throughout or that, that runs strongly throughout the narrative arc of his life is time. And by that I mean that it's, you know, to me, again, the most unusual aspect of his story is this idea that at such a young age, he seemed to have this sense of urgency that is, you know, again, unusual for young people, Um, this sense that time, our time is short. And um, he very much wanted to squeeze every um, second out of every minute, out of every hour. And, you know, that, uh, you know, he didn't sleep much. Um, He didn't really relax very often. And he just seemed to be driven by the sense that, you know, he had this amount of time to contribute something to the world, and, and that's what he wanted to do. And then, of course, the idea that um, the dot-com boom, which I write about uh, in 1999 when the company went public, was such an, just an incredible moment in time. And if the company, Akamai Technologies, if they had taken it, public, you know, a month earlier, a month later, it may not have had that kind of story, which Akamai became the fourth largest IPO of the dot-com boom. And Danny and his co-founders became overnight billionaires. But it was that moment in time, you know, it was so fleeting, but he seized it. And, um, and that's, you know, and then, of course, the technology that he created, um, in some ways, cheated time. You know, Akamai's uh, the, the goal of the company or, or its mission is to basically speed up the Internet and to allow companies to um, move content faster than the Internet normally allows. And so that idea of time, he just wanted to speed up everything in life, which is really fascinating to me. So one thing I noticed out there was his ability to, and I, I think you're mentioning this, to convince other people who were working with them to, to kind of join him, even people who were his professors, right? His his mentor at MIT joined the company, and that, that gentleman had been an academic and kind of uninterested in uh, commercialization. And, and he had this, this force about him that really kind of said to everybody, you know, you know, join me, which is this, or follow me, which uh, I guess in legend has that's the kind of the the rallying cry of the Israeli army officer, and, and that the Israeli army officer is Aharai in, in mm-hmm. Hebrew, right? Everything is after me. Is is, is that? I mean, it, it's hard to I guess to put in words specifically what you're you, what you glean from the book is to kind of see this incredible Israeli spirit, even though he was he grew up in America for most of his for most of his you know teenage years before he went to the army he was only in uh israel for uh, two or three uh years before he ended up going to the army and the other thing i think that's just you know second comment to from that that maybe you would understand better was the fact that he and, and this was actually mentioned by our previous guest bruce tarragon is a venture mm-hmm. capitalist is this ability of israeli entrepreneurs to who particularly those who graduate from the technical units of the army to go sit put in a room and solve a problem because if you don't solve this problem your family is going to die mm-hmm. um and you know that that kind of resonated so much with with regard to danny lewin that it just seemed that okay i'm gonna i'm gonna fix it because i have to yeah i mean there is no doubt to me that his that danny's experience um in israel uh in the in the late 80s and early 90s and his service in the army you know, he brought 
that with him to the world of business and venture capital and and entrepreneurial you know spirit in Cambridge at the time, and that definitely um, you know that that Israeli spirit of of urgency of um, kind of a you know no messing around attitude really I think allowed him to um, you know. There were a lot of a lot of smart folks in Cambridge at that time, coming up with a lot of great ideas for the internet. And the fact is, you know, not all, all of them succeeded. Um, very few succeeded in the way that Akamai Technologies did. And I think that's because he did. You know, one person sort of described him as, um, you know, in the in the boardroom or or in the control center of Akamai, he was like an Israeli tank commander. And, you know, it was, right, we have to get this done. When people would call and they would ask questions like, could you get this done for our company in the next three days? And Danny would put the phone down, hold the receiver for a second, get right back on without talking to anybody and say, yes, absolutely, sir, we can definitely do that. Absolutely, ma'am, we can definitely do that. And people around him would be going, oh, my gosh, you know, no, we can't. Oh, my gosh, we cannot do that. You know, there's no way. Um, he would promise things that other people thought were completely impossible. But you're right. I mean, he, he did that because he um, really thrived and, and became an adult in an environment in which if you didn't make that decision or you didn't do, do it or you wasted any moment, you know, you could put you or your family's life in danger. And so, um, you know, I think very few people could turn him away. And that is, you know, the, the incredible part of the business side of the story is that people would describe to me meeting him and listening and learning about this technology that was so complex. They understood the basic point, which is we're going to speed up your Internet um, and we're going to allow you to deliver your content quickly, efficiently, and without any service failure. But they didn't understand the math behind it. But what they also they understood was when he was in the room, explaining this stuff to us with his incredible sense of urgency and his excitement and his animation. We didn't know what it was, but we knew we had to have it. And, you know, we're talking about people who wrote big checks, um, you know, who said, okay, here's, here's my money. Go do with it whatever you're going to do because I think this guy is going to be big. And those are people who only met him, you know, once or twice, and he wasn't even 30 yet. So, so yeah, I think um, – he loomed larger than life in so many ways, and a lot of that I do think came from his love and, and experience in the in the IDF. I, one thing I'm reminded of with regard to this specific character character trait is with regard to Walter Isaacson's biography mm-hmm. of Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. who talks about that Steve Jobs kind of bended reality mm-hmm. to his own. <laughs> In, in a different way and coming from a different path, but both of them had this kind of personality for us to say, we're going to achieve the impossible, and everybody else said, well, you can't, it can't be done. And he says, well, you're just going to do it, and that's, and that's it, uh, which, is, which, of course, is, it can be dangerous for business sometimes, and sometimes mm-hmm. it can be wildly successful. Yeah, it's, it's, um, that's a really interesting comparison. Um, you know, there, there was a, um, in a sense, I think, for, for people around him, there was that feeling of bending of reality. I mean, no, we cannot create this many servers or, you know, we cannot, um, you know, get your business up and running on Akamai in the next 10 hours. We, we can't do it. And he would say yes without hesitation. Um, and there's no doubt but that that frustrated people around him. You know, that's the flip side to that as a business strategy. But, um, you know, people around him would get very tired. They would, you know, there was times when they thought, there were times when they thought he was being irrational and unfair. You know, we can't do this. That means we can't sleep for the next two nights. Or, you know, things that any anybody who works hard but still kind of sees things a different way might reasonably suggest, which is, you know, I'm not going to be here for the next three days trying to figure out this problem. It seems to me unsolvable anyway. Um, but, the, you know, the real difference, I would say, um, between Danny Lewin and any other CEO, Jobs included, but, you know, who did sort of distort reality and, and push his people beyond, you know, what anybody thought was possible, is that he, um, well, he did tick people off. He didn't, um, you know, if people around him weren't sort of on board, 
he would definitely just go off and do it himself. He he didn't really have much, um, you know, he, he had a, a pretty charismatic personality and a temper sometimes, but um, not in the way in which he would distort reality and then go back and say to people, you know, this is what happened when it really was not exactly how it happened. It was more a distortion of reality in that he truly believed that they could achieve those things. I, I don't get a sense of a huge ego from it. Maybe you could talk about that. For somebody who had such an outsized personality and such outsized abilities and such, such incredible problem-solving skills, I don't know that I would say that he was kind of selfish as opposed to selfless. No. I mean, you know, I think um, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, did he have an ego? Absolutely. I mean, when you become a for, you know, Fortune or Forbes 40 under 40, um, you've got billions of dollars at such a young age. He had a healthy ego, that's for sure. But ego in terms of, um, you know, uh, narcissism or an inability to self-reflect or um, that kind of thing or, or difficult to deal with, um, no. And I think that, you know, that was really demonst- demonstrated in the fact that, you know, after the IPO, and he was worth billions on paper at that point, um, that's when I think people really who who have egos can get um, trapped in those, you know, can say, well, I, look at what I've achieved, and now I'm going to go, um, I'm going to go enjoy it, but I'm going to enjoy it in a way that's not that productive. Um, he didn't do that. And so that's where I really saw the lack of, or, you know, I didn't see any sort of unhealthy dose of ego, is that after the company went public, his response was, okay, let's go back to work. I mean, this All is right, great. Let's get it done. Let's get it done. We're talking to Molly Nairaskin, uh the author of No Better Time, The Brief Remarkable Life of Danny Lewin, the genius who's transformed the Internet. And uh, I know everybody out there probably thinks that Al Gore really founded the Internet. But if Al Gore founded the Internet, Danny Lewin is the guy who made it work and actually made us yes. have a, have us the ability to watch movies and pictures and videos and the like. And uh, we have to wrap up, but I want to get one last question in for you. Let's talk about the irony of 9-11. Akamai was, was having a difficult time pre-9-11. And Danny Lewin is killed on 9/11, and yet there is a seems to be a resurrection of Akamai post 9/11. Yeah, it's it's a tragic irony, and it's one you know as a writer you couldn't you couldn't make up. You know, it's um, it almost seemed too strange to be true, which was that um, Danny was tragically killed on September 11th. Almost certainly the first first victim. He was on flight 11 from uh, Boston's Logan Airport, bound for a business meeting in Los Angeles, and. That day uh, that he was uh, tragically murdered on that flight, um, that very same day, the Internet faced what was its greatest test to date. There were crushes of traffic. Everybody all over the world wanted to find out what was going on on that terrible day. And the websites that used Akamai's technology, many of them, you know, Danny had gone and personally pitched to them and said, you know, you need this, you need this, someday you will need this this technology, because a crush will happen on this Internet that you've never anticipated. And that day was was the day that he was killed. And um, so, you know, really that's that's what was beautiful to me about his story and very inspirational is that he worked so hard to create something that would outlast him. And that's not easy to do. And that day, um, again, the Internet proved, uh, proved, you know, the greatest means of communication and everything he said about it proved true, and the company survived the dot-com boom uh, crash after, you know, losing a lot of its customers, having to totally change its strategy with its stock price at rock bottom, and bounced back to become, you know, the massive company that it is today. So, Truly amazing, and as you said, a tragic irony. Molly Knight Raskin, the author of No Better Time, The Brief Remarkable Life of Danny Lewin, the genius who transformed the Internet, and I will tell everybody out there, read this book. It's both inspirational as well as informative just with regard to Israel, with regard to technology, and really with a great biography of, a, of an extraordinary individual. Molly, thank you for joining us here on Tech Talk. Thank you so much, Michael. It was a pleasure. And thank you for all of you for listening here. Tech Talk, another episode in the book, sponsored by Adorama Camera, adorama.com on the Nachum Siegel Network. NachumSiegel.com. Stay tuned.